Climate change can be an overwhelming and divisive topic. Buddhist practice offers tools to help us turn toward the problem. Change in global or regional climate patterns is distinct from the constructs we create about that change. In this series, Sangha members offer reflections on how the threefold way of ethics, meditation, and wisdom can provide a dharmic lens for practicing with the sense of urgency climate change can evoke. With our metaphorical hair on fire. This segment focuses on wisdom. My name is Karuna Devi, and I was ordained by Bhante in 1993. And I'm a part of the San Francisco Buddhist Center. The temperature's rising, and the ocean's rising, and, and then how that's all interrelated to so many other things that are going on, to really start to, to work on reversing that trend involves a whole lot of institutional kinds of changes. From that standpoint, I've been just feeling that it's a really challenging time and yet a really exciting time to be living in the world because there's a potential for something something really major, some really major changes not just in reversing climate, our climate change, and reversing the degradation of the environment of the world, but creating a healthier, more sane, more equitable way of life for people. It feels like I have to look at it. I have to approach it that way. Otherwise, I'm going to be sort of paralyzed by the anxiety um, that can easily set in, and that's not to say that I don't sometimes feel that. Um, but, well, we have to start from where we are. Your comments fit in both the meditation and the wisdom sections. Uh-huh. Wisdom might be the hardest thing to articulate, but as a concept, what exactly are we talking about? But I think, you know, the interdependence that you were describing, mm-hmm. um, it's in the wisdom umbrella. Yeah. It has to do with not fixing our ideas about what's possible and what's not possible. And when negative mental states arise, when anxiety and despair arise and feeling hopeless, and it's, it's, it has to do with self. Has to do with the idea of self. It's interesting that you're, you know, that you're doing this with the the ethics, meditation, and wisdom themes, and seeing how those overlap too, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're really not discrete. Right. Yeah. I'm Arya Drishti, and I've been ordained for almost ten years now, and practicing for over twenty-five in the Tri Ratna tradition. My day job is a water resources engineer, primarily involved with restoring rivers and habitat and water quality. I think the way that Buddhism has influenced my life and my biggest quandary in Buddhist practice and in my work is how do I stay so open, so connected, and so passionate about what I do without being attached when everything doesn't work? 
you know, the way that I would want it to, the way that I would love to create this utopia that we can all live happily in and end all the suffering of beings. And no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, it doesn't make a dent. We're all familiar with this story in Buddhist practice. And so my practice has been, how do I not turn away? How do I turn towards suffering? How do I invite that in wholeheartedly and continue to give everything that I can into easing the suffering of beings without getting disheartened and frustrated and shutting down or blocking out what is actually happening um, the reality of that suffering, not being overwhelmed by it. And I think that, that that Buddhist practice enables me to really do incredible things in my work to try and not just kind of on a science basis of saying we'll restore so many miles of river, but how do we also reconnect communities with those rivers in ways that are meaningful, that they can engage and get excited about and learn about their natural systems that support them and learn to love these spaces. I'm Frank Gallivan. I'm a member of the San Francisco Sangha. I've been coming around for about 10 years, and last year I joined the ordination training process. Um, so I'm, I'm getting to know different levels of the organization and, and starting to, to meet people from, from different parts of the world as well. One of my first jobs after graduate school was, uh, and I got, I studied to be an urban planner. The first job that I took was in transportation planning with an emphasis on climate change, actually. Often we would find in our calculations that a great, huge effort like building a bicycle network across uh, an entire city would have like a 0.2% impact on the transportation emissions, which is very disheartening. And, and I realized also just how ineffective numbers can be at communicating reality. Cause there's so many, for something like building a bike network, there's so many other reasons to do that than climate change. Um, you know, there's the fact that bicycling is a more equitable form of transportation, that it's healthier, that um, having bike networks um, tends to go along with traffic calming measures and make transportation safer for everyone, um, builds community. Um, and that sort of stuff, I mean, we would write about that in the memos, but, um, but it was really frustrating ultimately to have the people that I was consulting for interested mainly in that that number which is just not not a big enough piece of the puzzle to to make a difference that that's what it would come down to is you know what how much change are we going to get for the money and then not being able to in those calculations not being able to value the impact of that money on people's lives in a in a holistic way in part why I've I've shifted careers and shifted my approach to the world in general is because I found myself sort of working within this silo or, or within these boxes and sort of speaking to other people who are working within their their silo or their box and not getting anywhere and so I went to school in, in part to learn the human-centered design process and be able to use that in my work for social goods 
So what I found is that that has a lot of power to create dialogue and foster empathy and and problem solving that takes account of uncertainties, you know, what we know, what we don't know, like ra- rather than all going around pretending that, that our version of the truth is the right one. <laughs> what if we had a way to have a dialogue that accounts for, for multiple different truths that, that people are living and, and, and still find a way to, to make improvements for, for everyone? It requires some faith to even believe that that's possible in order to, to try it. But I think that there's, we as humans can fundamentally orient to conflict and problem solving in a different way. That's what I'm trying to do now, not specifically on climate change, but with organizations uh, in general. My name is Vimala Moksha, and uh, I am a uh, hermit practitioner trying to make it here in the modern world and uh, trying to uh, find a way to be socially engaged and uh, work with all the disappointment we're facing in the world. (laughs) constructively in a beneficial way. So I, I live up at Dharmadara, which is a new retreat center that the San Francisco Buddhist Center has recently been putting more time and energy and money into. So yeah, I've been designing and building that facility over the last couple of years. You know, one of the more direct ways in which I have been influenced by the changing climate is increasing wildfires here in California and the threat of all of these different communities that I'm building up here, basically burning down. And part of me in starting to build this shrine room, it, it actually it was like trying to be quite clear that like more than likely this place is gonna burn down sooner rather than later. And still just living with that, being able to live with that, that possibility, that potentiality. And part of living with that and imagining that was imagining this place all burnt down and all of the forest around us just like totally charred black, the ground, the trees. And in that scene, there would still be a golden sunset that would happen with this black charred landscape. And as devastating as that image is in some ways, it was simultaneously a very beautiful image and a sense that that beauty will continue to find its way into the lives of human beings and uh, enrich their lives regardless of what circumstances we're faced with. One of the sort of skillful mean questions that I have for myself around uh, basically how to keep myself motivated (laughs) and not get despondent with all the statistics I I play like a, a carrot and a stick motivation tool with myself around this and I have to choose my stick motivation very carefully. If you play me a song about how potentially every spark of friendship and love will die without a home, then it's like a, a fear grieving process that has this inspirational cue within it. I have to say like, yeah, like listening to Arcade Fire, this band that has lots of sort of provocative apocalyptic imagery I find is a way to connect with that emotional part of, of the experience. 
for me. That's my stick motivation. And my carrot motivation is to imagine the disappointing utopia that I want to have emerge, you know, in all, in all of its forms through thinking about different carbon capture projects that I might be able to get involved in that are exemplifying very simplified forms of existing in nature. I, I fantasize about a whole carbon stewardship community that goes across into burnt out forests and revitalizes them and turns them into art and ways of capturing carbon and supporting people's lives. And that helps me uh, stay motivated to be like, okay, like regardless of whatever happens, there are things that can be done that will have all of these benefits. In terms of exemplifying a more ideal community and lifestyle for people on a variety of different fronts. The most intriguing carbon capture technique for me right now is the direct air capture technology that has been coming online by a few different companies that are starting to do it. Are these carbon capture machines that they've developed are basically taking carbon out of the atmosphere and turning it into a liquid calcium carbonate. I'm really very keen particularly to uh, investigate and connect more with people who might be considering how to use this as an asset. You know, concrete, for example, has a lot of calcium carbonate in it. All the dying reefs in the oceans are starved for calcium carbonate, you know? So I get excited about different ideas and technologies that are coming online that might actually fulfill multiple needs in terms of uh, providing resources for people and lowering our CO2 emissions. My name is Hridaya Shri, and I've been practicing with the San Francisco Sangha since 2005. Well, I don't know what's going to happen, right? But it doesn't look good. And I, it's interesting because my parents are climate deniers. You know, they just have that idea that it's something that's it's not man-made. It's something that happens over the course of millennia or eons that, you know, the Earth's climate changes. And I'm like, well, how can you say we don't have an impact? Can't you see all the industry and the cars and the planes and all the things that we're doing to contribute to, like, release all these gases into the atmosphere? And, you know, this thing of, well, you'll see, and then you'll be sorry, kind of come, came across my mind. And I think it's happening. I think we'll see is happening now. It's happening. It's feels like in the last three years, maybe, it's, you can't deny it anymore that we're really feeling the effects of a warming globe. I mean, I can feel it happening in terms of just how, well, for example, we have a retreat center up in Lake County, and then I'm also building a house with some friends nearby, and the fires are very scary. And I, we've had this property, I mean, the Buddhist centers also had Dharmadara for nine years at least. And I just, I don't remember this being an issue, even for the first few years. And then there was a horrible drought, which, and then all these trees died because of the drought. And the beetle kill pine had that impact because it wasn't getting cold enough in the winters, creating more fuel for fires, and it's impacted people in Lake County quite significantly. I'm curious about that you'll see thing that comes up because mm. the, the divide around this 
topic, especially in the United States, I think, where there's a lot more media that say it's not happening. Uh, I think that that can create a, a real animosity. It's already stressful enough, but now there's also this like ideological split right. that people have a hard time bridging. Well, it's too bad that it's been made political. There's no reason why this should be a political issue. It's more that some people need it to affect their lives personally. You know, if it doesn't affect their lives personally. I mean, my mother says, well, that'll be great because I like it warmer. And I'm just like, wow, that's a really kind of interesting view, I'll just say. I don't feel like people who don't agree or understand or actively actually try to negate climate change are enemies. They're trying to ease their own suffering in ways that I don't necessarily agree with, but I can see the motivations. I can see the motivation of someone who who wants to, you know, build a coal power plant and increase coal mining. They want to provide you know, maybe there's something about just having a lot of money and control and power and recognition and all of that. Sure, we're all driven by those forces. I know that I am at times. You know, there's a degree potentially, but it's all there. It's all within us. And I think that the more power and money that we have, for instance, the more recognition that we have, success, uh, the stronger those forces are to to try and say, Oh, actually, I don't want to, you know, make more money. I already have billions of dollars. What's three more billion? It's harder and harder to say no to those things when you are more successful and more powerful in those ways. The forces that our politicians are up against in terms of their ability to get reelected without those dollars, without that kind of recognition, is it's really hard. <laughs> so it's, it's not fair to say, you know, I choose to live this way, but someone else doesn't. I'm a GFR Mitra. I've been involved with Tree Ratna pretty steadily since 2001, although I dropped by for a short time way back in 95. And uh, yeah, so that's who I am. And my name's Ethan Davidson. This is something I got from Martin Buber. He's a Jewish existentialist philosopher. He talked about how people, especially educated people, they, they think in two ways at once. They think about history and how civilizations rise and fall and it's just the way it is and yada yada. And then also they're thinking about their friends and their family and people, individuals that they really care about in their daily lives. But then there can come a moment where you see both things at the same time and so then you realize that all the people in all these historical ups and downs were people just like the people in your daily life that you have emotions about, and, and that can shake you to your very core. So I can just be like, yeah, whatever, species come and go, and you know, uh, there have been other cataclysms in the past, uh, mass extinctions and so forth. This is the sixth one. Uh, over billions of years and uh, culpas and yada yada. But if I realize that all the individuals involved are real individuals, just like me and my friends and so forth, then it's really hard to be philosophical like that.
Hi, I'm Daya Mudra. I practice at the San Francisco Buddhist Center, and I work with the Dalit Buddhists in India. We have a school called Lokutra Leadership Academy in Kerala. My initial trip to India was after the tsunami, and the Sangha really came together, and my initial contact was with um, a group in Tamil Nadu who built a hostel for children who had been orphaned by the tsunami. So I think this collective energy and spirit and sense of cooperation that we have in the Sangha is very powerful. And last year, it was really incredible to see our school just take the lead in the community because they were telling me things like people needed to be, well, they needed to be warned about the storm. They weren't getting the information. Then they needed to be evacuated. And then it was just madness at these shelters and the upper caste people were in private rooms and everybody else were just like in the big gymnasium. And then someone would come with a truck and just dump clothes and food and everybody was just kind of, you know, fighting over it. It really could have gotten very dangerous. And our team and our students just took like two weeks off from work and they went in and they counted how many children, how many women, how many dads. And then they put a sign outside each of these emergency shelters. I think there were 12. And they met with people. They just started documenting so they could organize folks. And then when the trucks came, they were able to get a sense of, okay, this is how many people are here. And they were able to distribute things more peacefully. And that just happened very spontaneously. And a lot of the leadership came from these kids who had all dropped out of high school, but were very inspired living in a like an asanga setting. So to see the cooperation and the communication and the empathy and the compassion, I think sort of that's taking our practice out into the world, like meeting the suffering in that moment. I'm Nancy Arts. I live in Maine and practice with the uh, Portland, Maine sangha known as Nagaloka. I've been participating for about eight years, and I am a training for ordination mitra. I'm retired now, but my career was as a university professor, and I taught courses in environmental sustainability and ethics, among other things. I would want people to, you know, not despair, not feel that their efforts don't matter because everything counts. My, my husband used to say, when one person sneezes, it's not a big deal. But if, uh, you know, seven, what, we have 7.7 billion people. If all of us sneeze at the same time, something big's going to happen. I have seen incredible societal change. So you look at before World War II, during World War II, the economy changed on a dime and went from consumer mass production to a wartime economy, you know, building planes and everything else. If society gets motivated, it can change quickly. And then we've also seen parallels like in the smoking. When I was a young kid, it seemed everybody smoked everywhere. It just was surrounded by smoke. And I remember my sister got a job working for the Surgeon General in 1980. And there was a, a campaign for the, the year 2000. We were going to end smoking in public. And, and I was just laughing. It's like, are you kidding? That's never going to happen. And maybe it didn't happen by the year 2000. But at this point in life, yeah, there's still people who smoke, but not in workplaces, not all over in public, not in retail environments. What can happen is this very slow process of attitude change 
and it seems like nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, there's a like a tipping point or an exponential rapid change of societal agreement that we need to do something. So I think that that is very possible in our society that we are making incredible progress in having the world understand that we need to act. My name is Ben Ovshinsky. I first connected with FWBO in 1980. I became a Mitra about seven, eight years ago in San Francisco, and I'm a GFR Mitra for the last four years. One of the things I realized in 1970 that I was exposed to academically, which you don't hear any, zero reference to it in the contemporary media coverage uh, of climate change, is that the human phenomena, Homo sapiens, the 50,000 years of Homo sapiens, we're living in a, uh, an inter-ice age, an interregnum of an ice age cycle that we're probably in the middle of the fifth or sixth of the last, I'm guessing, two to 10 million years. We're living between glaciation, uh, radical, radical catastrophic, from a human point of view, climate change periods. The ice ages last for, um, you know, a couple hundred thousand, half a million years, and then you get a 30 to 50,000 year interregnum, which is what we're living in. So we came upon the scene just after where about 30% of the United States, and I'd say probably 40, 50% of North America, was covered in one continuous sheet of ice. That's climate change. That's real climate change, where you walk out your door and you're looking up at a mile-high glacier that goes on for a whole continent. And the science that I was taught was, well, this is, you know, every couple hundred thousand years. And you can expect that glaciation to return. It could have started a hundred years ago. It might start in 10,000 years, but it will return, all other things being equal. What's not equal is the human intervention since then. So, and I recognize that. I recognize that human activities from the industrial uh, age, uh, where you're starting to burn fossil fuels and, and release carbon dioxide and all kinds of other things in the atmosphere, that can and will change climate. How dramatically, I, I don't know. And as to how dramatic climate is changing, it's certainly, what's obvious is weather change, weather patterns are changing, as they always do. And I've got, as a person, as an individual, very little control. So it's that control thing. I have very little control over the power, so then what's my relationship to that? Is it like striving to control the power, to have some power, to make some power, to be really attached to the outcome, really, really desiring an outcome, and having an incredible preference and an aversion? See, all of which I feel is like non-dharmic. I mean, it's dharma throws light on that as something that's for unhealthy, for want of a better term, you know, so. I'm Donna Maya. Uh, I live in Richmond, California, but I practice with the San Francisco Buddhist Center. 
I've been coming around to tree retina activity since the fall of 1990, so I'm coming up on 30 years. Um, I was ordained in 2002, so I guess I'm 17, more or less. <laughs> I retired three years ago uh, after a long career in healthcare. I was a, a, a family nurse practitioner. Among the problems that we face, that we deal with every day, is is an appalling amount of busyness. It is pandemic. And it's also, it's kind of hidden in plain sight because we suffer from it all the time. And because there's this, this kind of push all the time to uh, make things happen. I really understood this coming to the end of my career, how much that uh, had really worn me down. It was really hard to generate meta for myself and others under those conditions. And I was one of the lucky ones. I had a really good career um, helping other people. Uh, but recently I found a quote by Thomas Merton that I want to share because it just, for me, encapsulates this. This is from Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, which also speaks to me <laughs> about what we're dealing with when we try to approach all of these issues of climate change, things that are just tremendously scary that we don't know how we're going to solve, especially when we're at a personal level. We don't, we're just people with two hands, and how are we going to affect this? So here's the quote. There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form perhaps the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. So that really speaks to me about the care we need to take and the amount and the kinds of meta we need to bring into being for ourselves and then for other beings because it's this, this relentless drumbeat of bad news all the time and we will will wreck ourselves if we don't manage expectations in a sense. Um, but I think deeper than that, it's, it's contacting the real roots of meta that live in our hearts and our bodies. There's been a big change in my practice and that sense of kind of going above and beyond the self and feeling that connection with other people and with other species. In the beginning, I used to get so frustrated and overwhelmed and I would work really hard and then I would just want to give up and I haven't felt that way in a really long time and I think a big part of that is that I'm connected to a community of people who care and who are practicing on this level not just as Buddhists but also in my professional life um, that sense of all of us working together to kind of nudge the world in the right direction. I mean, even if it doesn't look like we're making a difference, the work itself and that sense of community and knowing that the energy I'm putting out there is in the right direction, it doesn't matter so much that I don't see a direct result. It's that 
I'm fully engaged in working towards something that I believe is making the world better. And that action is worthwhile. Thanks for listening. And to everyone who offered their reflections here. Music and sound effects via Splice. Produced by Ramsoid Samples, Molly Moore, Big Room Sound, Alexander Tanus, Capson Pro Audio, and Audio Imperia. For the Buddhist Sensor Online, I'm Mary Salome. <laughs>